I'm Tavin Asir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tanvir Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate workshops in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. To find out how we can help you today with your leadership challenges and discover your untapped opportunities, visit our website at tavernasir.com. And now I am so excited to welcome my guest back to my podcast for a third time. He's now the most frequent guest on my leadership podcast. And as you can see from the episode title, I'm speaking about none other than Tom Peters. Tom has a new book out called Tom Peters Compact Guide to Excellence. And when it was released, he reached out to me saying he'd love to come back on my show to talk about it. And my answer was, great, how about now? All kidding aside, I have to say what an honor it is to be able to speak with Tom again about leadership and in particular, drill down into some of the pressing issues and controversies plaguing leadership today. And if you haven't heard Tom speak on my podcast before, just a note here that Tom does drop the odd profanity here and there to emphasize his frustration. So just something to be mindful of in terms of where you play this or who you want to share it with. So without further delay, here's my latest conversation with Tom Peters. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to the Leadership Biz Cafe. It is my pleasure to be back. It's always nice to be re-invited a second time, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this is your going to be your third time on the podcast. So, you know, Tom, two more times and you get a free coffee or tea. <laughs> hey, fabulous. You can't ask for more than that. <laughs> so, Tom, you have a new book out called Tom Peters' Compact Guide to Excellence. And before we dive into it, I have to ask you, because this is really different from your previous 19 plus books, what was the spark that made you think of, I want to take a different attack on this? I've been asked that question a lot, and I don't really have a good, quick, cute, clever answer. I was working on the last book, the Extreme Humanism book. And well, first of all, most important thing, when you pick it up, you will see two names on the spine, mine and Nancy Green. And Nancy is on everybody's list as one of the best designers in the world. And, and we, started, we started talking, albeit he was a horrible man. We started using the term uh, TLRB, the little red book, uh, which of course was Mao's thingy. And what I learned from that, I've been talking about design and waving my hands and all that sort of stuff for 20 years now, but I learned what it really meant when we worked on this book. I had done my special acknowledgement to Nancy, which I did on the prior book, and I thought, that's bullshit. She's the co-author. And the book is the look, feel, taste, touch, smell. And what we did on the inside was basically it's 85% quotes, powerful quotes, <clears throat> that I've collected over a 43-year period. And for once, 
we didn't get Richard Branson telling you something followed by a thousand words of Tom Peters bullshit. This time through, we left it to Mr. Branson and, you know, and, and, it, and she, as you, as you probably saw, she, I think she did a brilliant job in the way it's laid out. And our readership hope is not that people will read it cover to cover, which you could do almost sitting on the toilet, but that people will dive in and pick one or two things and really focus on them. Because there's not a, there's not a quote in the book that you couldn't spend an hour or even a day discussing. They really, you know, I don't think I'm patting myself on the back, but they really are powerful quotes. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. In fact, I echo some of the endorsements your book got that as you're flipping through it, you really get some of them really just grab you and captivate you and really make you think, which is what I thought would be a great way for us to explore this book is to, you know, I'm going to share some of the quotes when I was going through it and how it got me thinking about it in the context of some of the current issues a lot of leaders are grappling with now and how there might be some insight they can glean from this and maybe also how you can add to it in terms of why that made it into this book and so forth. And the first quote that I want to explore with you is from Bill George, who said, the capacity to develop close and enduring relationships is one mark of a leader. Unfortunately, many leaders of major companies believe their job is to create the strategy, organization structure, and organizational processes. Then they just delegate the work to be done, remaining aloof from the people doing the work. Now, this stood out for me because I think it explains that ongoing tension we're seeing right now between employees who are now looking for a more flexible work arrangement to how they get their jobs done and leaders who are now saying, all right, that's enough of that. Let's get back to work as if their employees weren't working this entire time. Oh, yeah. And and not just Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to touch him because <laughs> I know he's a bit of a sore no, no, no. I don't want I don't want to touch him. But. You know what's interesting? When I look at these conversations, Tom, and actually I'm using the wrong word here, it's not a conversation, right? I don't see these leaders actually taking the time to say, I need to listen to understand the perspective of my employees, what's their pain point, and how to communicate my perspective of why this is necessary, why this is valuable, especially when we've yeah. seen after that first year of the pandemic, everyone was worried we're going to take a productivity hit. We're going to take a profit hit. We're going to take hits on all our metrics. And yet the opposite happened. So there's not been a compelling argument being presented to say, I hear you, I understand, but this is why we went and we thought about it. And this is why we need to do this. So working off Bill's quote here, do you think this chasm that we're seeing between employees and employees right now in terms of the future of work and how people will work going forward? is because so many leaders are going back to just focusing on the processes and not on the people. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's funny. I, and I haven't done this as a real pro, but Frederick Taylor, who's always seen as the time and motion guy, and it's seen as very bureaucratic. The funny thing about, the cool thing about it is it was just the opposite. What Taylor wanted was to figure out some good ways to do things and then say to the people, do them that way. And he was trying to protect them. Excuse my language. I don't know what I'm allowed to use on this show to protect them from asshole bosses. And, you know, which I always found fascinating because I was never a Taylorite, to put it mildly. Um, 
Oh God, there's so many pieces to your to your answer. I, I'm gonna answer in one little bit and then you can push me in any direction. Uh, whatever I'm doing, I've been doing since about 1979. And there is a single day on which those 43 years hinge. And we'll leave a little bit of the, the zoom behind, behind for a minute. So I was working for the now disgraced McKinsey and Company, uh, along with Bob Waterman. And we were supposed to look at companies that worked. And incidentally, the motivation from the managing director of McKinsey was how the hell come we designed these brilliant, incredible, genius strategies and the companies can't execute, which, of course, is the organizational and the people part. But anyway, we were in San Francisco, down the road 30 miles, was a rapidly growing, really cool company, a billion dollars in revenue, and its name was Hewlett Packard. I mean, Hewlett Packard has just become one more bureaucracy today, and we can talk about that if we want to. But it was youthful, energetic. And so we went down to Palo Alto, 30 miles, and had a, had a meeting with the president, whose name was John Young. So first of all, we, we were working in the Bank of America Tower. And I said to somebody, if you were invited for tea, you drank it with a teacup that had formerly been in Buckingham Palace. It was not exactly loose, free, open, and so on. So that was, that was their life. So we go down to Palo Alto, and it was a small enough company that you go up to the front re, you know, reception desk, and either Bob or I said, you know, we have a meeting with John Young. And what that means in the big company world is John Young's executive assistant to the executive assistant comes out and takes you vaguely toward the office. We couldn't have been there more than 30 seconds, and this guy pops out of the door he said, hey, I'm John Young. Glad you guys are here. At which point, the president of this billion-dollar company or multi-billion-dollar company takes us back to his office, meaning an eight-by-eight eight cubicle in the engineering spaces with, you know, those walls that go up about as far as your chin. Uh, and it was you know, So we were already at the holy shit level. And during the meeting, and, and this was the 10 seconds, 20 seconds that obviously I didn't know it at the time, changed my life. He introduced us to what he called, or they called the HP way. And at the center of it was MBWA, or managing by wandering around. And in retrospect, you didn't know at the time, that was a life changer. Uh, you know, leadership meant if you're in a big company using cups that had come from Buckingham Palace, if you were in a smaller company, it meant not quite that degree, but the boss always sat in his office and the secretary in those days sat outside. And I want to get back to that in a second. But at any rate, so John, tell, I mean, what it did for me to skip to the bottom, it told me, and I had a PhD in organizational behavior, for God's sakes, from Stanford. It told me that effective leadership is an intimate act. It is not about the process map. It is not about the strategy. It is about human contact. So after an hour with Young or something like that, 
He said, you know, I told you about all this MBWA thing. He said, and obviously this was not practice. He said, let's do a little bit. And so, you know, this guy who's 45, 46, 47, 48, I don't, I don't know, takes us out onto the engineering floor. And honest to God, he knew 75% of the names. Um, and he chatted with 26-year-old engineers uh, in the most commonplace, unstilted uh, way known to humankind. And then he said, which was kind of the kicker, he said, there's a guy over there I want you to meet. And there was this old fart, and he was talking about a 25-year-old engineer. In those days, you had big screens, and they were pointing at stuff on the screen. And so young Texas over, and he said, Bob and Tom, I want you to meet Bill Hewlett. And it was, you know, that's, that's when, I'm sorry we're not on video, the jaw dropped. <laughs> and there was Bill Hewlett, age whatever the heck he was. And he's hanging out with a 25-year-old engineer, and they're talking about problems. So, as I said, I didn't know it at the time, but it completely transformed my notion of what an organization could be. And to leap way ahead, uh, and what you and I are doing is part of it, when Zooming came along, I kind of assumed it would depersonalize and unemotionalize things. And I'm sure it does for a significant number of people. But you and I right now are having an in as intimate a conversation as we could if we were sitting over tea or sitting over a beer or what, what have you. Uh, so it's not, it's not a dehumanizing thing. Uh, and, and again, I think that that's, that's all important. Uh, I mean, I guess you're right. I've read it other places. It woke a lot of people up to the shit they were taking on a regular basis when they were in the office. And, you know, and the response is, well, maybe we're not going to go back to five days a week or even one day a week. And, and the, the great awakening, as they call it quite grandly, I think that's the, that's the real deal. Um, there are a couple problems with what I've said. Um, and, and I don't really think this is a problem, but I always like to make this clear. I just told you about Hewlett Packard. If there is a management guru class, and I hate that term, it was invented by the economist in their year-end issue, God, God help us all. Uh, but if there is a guru class of which I am a senior member, I bet you if you did a line-by-line -line analysis of what we've written, 80% of it would be associated with the Fortune 500 or the FTSE 100. We act as if the world is big companies. And in the US, the slightly different number is something like 7% of us work for the Fortune 500 companies and using advanced math, 93% of us don't. All the job creation, over 100% of the job creation comes from the so-called SMEs, the small and the medium-sized enterprises. Almost all the innovation starts there. And, and I am mean, just being guilty myself. You'll find mention throughout my books, but you will not find the obsession that I have today. It's the SMEs who drive the world, and it doesn't matter what country it is or, or anything else. And that's, that's huge. I mean, it's, it's really huge. Yeah, and you know, as you were talking just now, Tom, you brought to mind something that even before I really delved into your book, I wanted to talk to you about. And so when I saw there was a section 
in your book that actually addressed it. I'm like, oh, we're still talking about this. And I think you're you set me up beautifully. And it's the point of how something I don't see, and I know you're going to agree with me 100% on this, that we're not seeing a lot of, not just in the workplace, but just even in general in civil discourse, and that is kindness. And there's this great quote you have from Mark Sanborn where he said, people who don't feel significant usually don't make significant contributions. And, you know, I just think that, again, if we're looking at some of the discussions over flexible work arrangements and so forth, and even now when you're just talking about SMEs, right? Again, a lot of the focus is on, oh, who's on the Fortune 500? Who's the Fortune 100? Right. But we're not really paying attention to those smaller companies. But I think we are starting to see that because we see the bigger companies like Facebook or Meta, as they're now referred to, people are starting to realize the reason they're starting to fall back is because they've never really innovated everything. They pretty much just right. acquired innovation. Yeah, They went after the smaller companies. And so I think there is an inflection point that's happening here, both in the context of work, where people are starting to realize, you know what, I don't have to rely on a company to dictate where I work and when. So I can create opportunities for myself to do this because now the world of work is changing. And do you think that that's also maybe what's causing this this knee-jerk reaction where we're just trying to pull back to pre-2019 because you know even the the most opaque leaders can get, read those tea leaves that you know what your time holding the wheel exclusively is coming to a, an end here. Yeah, and I bet you though I may well not be around and probably won't. I bet you 15 years from now that It'll be the phenomenon of phenomena, basically, that that, 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 that is the case. Uh, to go back to your first sentence, and I want to go somewhere different with it in a minute, but here's, here's what I want to say, and I want to say it, and I want to scream it at everybody who is listening to us, and that is, if you want kindness, hire kindness. If you want kindness, promote kindness kindness. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure people can change and I think it's fantastic. And in the right organization, they can change a lot. But you know, there's this biotech guy who also made it into this book. And he said, we have a secret to our powerful culture. We only hire nice people. And what was what I loved about that was it didn't come from a fast food company. It came from a biotech company. And he said, my breakthrough was there are degrees which the people in my R&D department have where you wouldn't even understand the name of the degree. But regardless of how obscure it is, I discovered something interesting. A lot of people have it. Hire the kind ones. And you know, in his case, it's, a, it's double magic. You're him. I'm some hotshot with a 9.7 grade point average from MIT. And you're drooling at the things I'm saying, because just the kind of people you want to have, holy shit, the smartest guy I've ever met and so on. Well, that's fine. But when you and I have finished our hour chat, I, his term again, run the gauntlet. I have about seven, 10 to 15 minute interviews with people randomly selected from the company. It could be an engineer scientist, and it also could be somebody in the purchasing department or the HR or the finance department. And every one of those, you know, every one of those seven people 
has 100% veto power over whether Tom Peters gets hired or not. And and I, I think it's, you know, there's somebody, uh, wish I could remember who and give him the right amount of credit, wrote an entire book on hiring and the either the subtitle or the first page. And what he said was, the most important act that an organization performs is hiring, and most people don't take it very seriously. Uh, and so, to my mind, hiring, you want nice, hire nice. And number two, you want nice, promote nice. Because I argued in the book that the number one capital asset of any organization is the full collection of first-line leaders. Because if you look at the research, every frigging thing is related to the frontline leader. Retention, productivity, quality, you name it. And again, I don't think we pay anywhere nearly, nearly enough attention. But I would really love to batter people over the head with the, with the hiring thing. And I would like to batter people over the head with... The EQ thing, which is a little bit bothersome because EQ can become bureaucratic too, but it is the notion, the emotional. How do I feel about you? You know, in the, the Mayo Clinic is always at the top of everybody's list of best healthcare providers. And a couple of guys wrote a wonderful book five, six, seven years ago. It was called Management Lessons from the Mayo Clinic. And we'll continue our discussion of two and a half minutes ago. So Tom is Surgeon Tom, otherwise known as God, you know, best heart guy around, and you are interviewing me for a job. What you are unaware of, and maybe you're scratching on your hand with a pen, what you're unaware of is that while we talk, I am counting literally the number of times that you use the word we and the number of times you use the word I. And if the I's beat the we's, then Mr. Hot Shit Surgeon, God bless you, but you ain't working here. And it may sound like some you know crazy phony baloney, but that happens to go all the way back to 1914 and Dr. Mayo of the Mayo Clinic, who said, I want team medicine. And God knows in today's hyper-bureaucratic healthcare, you know, you, you don't you don't get that, to put it mildly. No. And again, Tom, you're setting me up perfectly because there's another quote that you're setting me up here for, because I think there is a certain demographic group that really evokes that what you're saying perfectly. This is a quote from Jack Zenger and Joseph Folkman, who talks about how women are rated higher in fully 12 of 16 competencies that go into outstanding leadership. And two of the traits where women outscored men to the highest degree Taking initiative and drive for results have been long thought of as particularly male strengths. And to add to it, one of the things that women are consistently been shown to outpace men on is their ability to develop and sustain enduring relationships, which are deep and meaningful, yeah. which is key to collaboration, right? Again, to your point of we're not focusing on my accomplishments. We're focusing on what we're collectively trying to achieve. Yeah. But again, if I go back to looking at the pandemic, I mean, again, one of the things that we saw that came out of that was how women were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, both 
in terms of economics, but also professionally in terms of their growth and their opportunities. But once again, we're seeing like pretty much nothing being done about it to address it. And when you see all the data and all the research showing how if you want to innovate, if you want your organization to grow, if you want them to become more agile, you need to bring more women and even more minority groups into your leadership pipeline and start developing them. But again, we're not seeing that conversation. Do you think that in this case, it's because leaders aren't giving themselves the time to reflect and consider what is it that we need to do going forward? It just seems like right now there's really this focus on literally a quarter by quarter basis. And like, okay, here's the quarterly results. This is what we need to do. Because I, I understand we're all concerned about how deep the recession will be. But we all know what happens at the end of a recessionary period. Every company starts investing in growth, in hiring talent. If you're not putting in that foundation now, you're going to be playing catch up when that time comes. But again, yeah. so many organizations just seem to be focused on, oh, our growth wasn't as great as we projected. We didn't have a loss. We just didn't grow as much. So let's curtail our talent pool. So do you think what we need to see leaders do more of is have that reflection? And ironically, if we had more diversity, we would have these kinds of thoughts being considered and applied? Yeah. Uh, It's funny. I had an office in Palo Alto, and the woman who ran the sales part of it came up to my office one day, and she said, you know, you're going up to San Francisco in two weeks and you're going to a meeting and it's a meeting that I called and I've asked about 10 incredibly successful women to come and they are going to lecture you on what a total jerk you are on gender issues. You know, she and I got along well, so, you know, that didn't blow me away. And she was right. And it was, you know, stuff I didn't know to a significant degree. You know, because most of the gender discrimination, a lot of the inclusivity uh, problems are you can see them when you walk through the door. With women, it tends to be a little bit more subtle, I think. Maybe it's not. Uh, And that 1996, 26 years ago, it's a little bit like the HP thing. And the people who are listening to it are probably already tired of me. Uh, It was a magical moment when I had the crap beaten out of me. And then what I did, because it's my training, is I started looking at the research. And as you said, a bit of it is summarized in the new book. And it's, and you know, there's one I love in particular, those McKinsey people again, did a study and companies with a higher number of women on the board wildly outperformed those who had a lower number. And, you know, I mean, there, there are women who are miserable human beings who you wouldn't want to lead you down the hall. But on average, as you said, women are more thoughtful about their fellow human beings, in which case we go back to the first sentence out of your mouth. Uh, people who are not considered to be significant will not do significant work. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what women do. You know, there's, a, there's a book called The Female Brain written by a University of San Francisco, University, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, which is a medical place. You know, her name is Luann uh, Brizendine. 
And there's a lot of stuff, but the one I loved best relative to this people stuff, by the age of three days, D-A-Y-S, baby girls are making two and a half times more eye contact with their fellow human beings than baby boys. And so it really is true. I mean, you know, it's it, obviously you know, the, the role, the, our role, yours and mine, was to sleep as much as we could, get up in the morning, go out into the woods and throw spears at animals. That was our deal. That was our job. And women, moreover, were on the women's role was to grow the community. There's this wonderful book that we don't have time to talk about called Compassionomics. And the one thing I learned in it, which, you know, they're not using their language. I can't get it exactly. But Darwin never said survival of the fittest. That was another guy by the name of Spencer. To the contrary, Darwin said survival of the best communities. Because in the best communities, you can be safer, you can generate more children. But we got Darwin wrong by 180 degrees. Uh, you know, and and I, I, I want to stick with your thought, and I want to just go not, not far afield, but it's something that triggered it. It's when you were talking about the short-term earnings, and I have to watch out because I need a barf bag whenever I talk about it. In September of 1970, the Nobel laureate, subsequent Nobel laureate in economics, Milton Friedman, wrote a famous slash infamous article uh, in the New York Times, and it said, corporations have no social responsibility. That's 1970. In 1970, 50% of profits went to shareholders, executives, 50% of profit went to people, research and development, et cetera. A, a study was, that's 1970. A study was done in 2014, 44 years later, and that 50-50 ratio, this is the one that calls for the barf bag, had become 91.9. 91% of profits go to share back, buybacks, shareholders, executive income, and 9% is left for the people thing, uh, you know, and the R&D and so on. I mean, if that doesn't make you, excuse my language, effing puke, I don't know, you know, what, what the heck would. Uh, and, 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 you know, these, these, the ones who were investing for the long term we're wildly outperforming the others on every damn financial measure you can imagine, on every innovation measure you could manage, imagine, uh, you, know, you name it. And they, were in and they were the ones who were creating new jobs. I mean, I, I said to somebody, Why? I'm 80 freaking years old. Why the hell do I have to waste a freaking hour with you saying people are important? <laughs> and the answer is because... I've been trying to get the message across for over 40 years and ain't there yet, dude, you know, and, and, you know, my last breath will be you and I having our fourth conversation. And during that conversation, what will we be talking about? Exactly the same frigging things we're talking about today. So speaking of people, 
the UN just announced that there are now 8 billion of us living on this planet. And that's understandably led to conversations around sustainability. And I love this quote you share under your theme of sustainability from fashion designer Vivian Westwood, who said, buy less, choose well, make it last. Quality rather than quantity, that is true sustainability. If people only bought beautiful things rather than rubbish, we wouldn't have climate change. Now, I was thinking about so many of the things we bought recently and how, you know, just thinking of how old it is, we're anticipating it's going to die because of planned obsolescence, right? It's not because we're misusing it. It's not because it's being overused. It's just because we know after X amount of years, it's just going to conk out because we've defined the way we manufacture stuff where we put in cheaper quality pieces or we even in case of smartphones, right? We just kind of make it so every year we feel, oh, I have to change my phone, even though the one I have does the job. There's no need for it. Yep. So right now that's the model we're all operating on, right? So there's a lot of focus we've been talking about. Okay, how do we change the future of work? How do we diversify the the leadership pipeline? But then I'm also thinking about how we just approach the way we create products, right? Because manufacturing has become this big thing that we've been focusing on. We got to bring manufacturing back. But if we're thinking about sustainability, how do we change our viewpoint? Because as you point out in your book, sustainability is both the right thing to do and the profitable thing to do. So how do we shift that while still being, you know, as you we were just discussing, while I still got to answer to my shareholders? Well, Part of it, and I want to come back to in some way something more fundamental, is look at the numbers. There, oh, God, it annoys me. A book that I cited, you may remember even more than I, because you've got the book in front of you, was something like The Three Secrets. And these were people from Deloitte and Touche, and they looked at four or 500 companies, and they picked out 27 of the four or 500 that were the really top performers. And from that came the three secrets. And the secrets were better before cheaper, revenue before cost, and number three was there are no other secrets. Uh, and, you know, I, I love the book. I mean, I, you know, again, given my background, I love a book like that, but I really love it when there's enough bloody damned research that you can't just blow me off and say, well, that's cute, Tom. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, th- I, think there's, I think there's no issue to that. I don't understand. Of course I do. You could be starving to death. Your kids could be starving to death. If you, let's go to the other end of the loop. If you got your MBA from MIT, Stanford, or Harvard, why would you go to work for a company that makes shit? which is to say Mark Zuckerberg. But, well, that's a different conversation. <laughs> uh, There's uh, two people I tried desperately to avoid bringing up, and I'm that sorry, was the other sorry one. I said the name. No, 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 it's just because I think you and I are on the same page, and I don't want this to become two middle-aged old men ranting at the clouds. Absolutely. <laughs> type of conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, I completely, completely buy your act. But... Um, I mean, I think we've gone down a pretty long road today. I think that issue is almost the most mysterious 
that I know. Why wouldn't your instinct be to make terrific things? And one way I talk about it that you could brag about to your kids. Uh, you know, as I said to you, I think it may have been before we started or maybe it wasn't relative to the current book that you're looking at, which is the first book I've written that I actually like. And that's because of the co-author, Nancy Green, who is a great designer. And you know, I think the reason people are getting off on the book is not because Tom Peters gave you 117 quotes that he's used 117 times each, but you know, the, the look, feel, taste, touch kind of says, holy shit, this is something different. You know, I, th I think her design, the, the book is its design. And I mean, obviously I don't have a good answer. Why, 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 would, why would you want to make crap? You know, I just, I don't even, I don't understand it in any way, shape or form. We can't all be, you know, the boss of a four-star restaurant that's reviewed as one of the great ones at the planet. But whether you're in the mid-range, bottom-range, top-range, you can be incredibly special. And one piece of it, to go back to an earlier conversation, and you could argue forever about chickens and eggs, is hiring people who get off on being excited about good things. You know, I, I think you could find that in an interview if you were really determined to. Not does he own a Tesla instead of a Ford, but you know, just the way they talk, the way they live their life, uh, what have you. Uh, part of it, as you implied in the last couple of sentences, was because of the damn drive for short-term profitability, which we discussed earlier. Um, but I am at a loss as to why anyone would be want to be associated with some organization that wasn't trying to do something worthwhile. I don't get it. I mean, I, you know, maybe, maybe I should thank my parents or whatever, whatever else. Um, you know, I came from, I did not come from a poor family. I came from a lower middle class family. So it sure as hell, you know, I'm now living 80 miles from Harvard. I didn't even know how to spell the word Harvard when I was a kid. Most of the people who lived near me started at one of those prep schools. So they knew about it from birth, but that's another story. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, again, I can easily say stuff that we've talked about, like hire people who love cool things, not people who don't. But of course, the problem then is who's doing the hiring. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to bring up, Tom, is that I'm just wondering, as I look at where the conversation you and I've had just now, I'm wondering if it's just a lack of leadership courage, because I understand the point of hiring. But then I'm thinking some people might say, Yes, but I've been hired by companies under the promise that we were going to do great things. We yeah. were going to do wonderful things. And then the leader I was put under just basically was only interested in meeting certain targets that yeah. were just arbitrarily established. And it just took the wind out from underneath me. And I'm thinking about leadership courage because what came to mind is the example of Alan Mulally and how when he joined Ford, and he had all those VPs in one of those first meetings, I want to understand what's the problems, what's the pain points. Nobody wanted to speak up because there was this perception that if you were to say that something's going wrong, that's a reflection on you. So it's just yeah. best to just say about, oh, everything's going great. There's no problems. There's nothing wrong here. And it took him to change the, the culture and to change the conversations where it's like, look, if you don't say what's going wrong, 
then how are we going to fix it? And your employees see things are going wrong. And if you don't care to fix it, why should they care? Yeah. Right. So I'm wondering if it's just, again, just a lack of courage on our part to recognize that, again, there's so much tectonic changes. I mean, I still remember, was it five, seven years ago? Leaders were arguing over whether they would allow their employees to use their own smartphones at work, right? Now, the idea that you could tell your employee, no, you're not allowed to use your own smartphone at work, you people will just look at you like you popped out a third like eye on your forehead, right? Yeah. So I, I'm just wondering if, you know, again, why is it that we have to be kind of be pulled, you know, kicking and screaming towards something which we when you look at the data and you and I are both science guys, it just makes sense. This is going to help you do better. So why not just embrace it instead of fighting it? Because I fear what it's going to lead to. Yeah. Well, I'm going to not get back to, I want to go off on a, a slightly different tangent and it's about you and I and what you're doing here. I came to the conclusion that I wasn't God. It's hard to do, but I did. And so (laughs) I once said to somebody, if Tony Robbins goes into an audience of 800 people, he expects to change 800 lives. If I go into an audience of 800 people and three people walk out really determined to do something that's really very cool and different. I have had one hell of a good day. Mm -hmm. And so one problem I think with me and you and what we're doing here and so on is I want to, I want to find the ones who haven't made the plunge into the dark world who are, you know, kind of youngish or excited about business. And I want to find the ones who are, vaguely leaning in our direction and then give them every single bit of help that I possibly can. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not planning to change the world, but God, I mean, Holy moly. What if I went and gave a speech and three people did something incredibly cool? Hey, Tom, you had a hell of a day. And, you know, I think that's true of this show. It's true of anything that, that you're involved in. If you can, if you can help a few people, uh, you know, you've come a long, long way. And so, you know, that's a huge part of my message. I've, I've given up on the arrogance. Well, how can I change the mindset of the Fortune 500? Uh, Tom, you can't. <laughs> uh, and, and so let's, let's, let's find every lollies. Let's transform five or six of them. And then maybe they become role models for the, for the rest. You, 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 never, you never know. I love what you're saying here, Tom, because it reflects a line you have in the epilogue of this book where you refer to it as being a blinding flash of the obvious. And I just love that because I think because it's obvious, it's not something we're paying attention to. We're not giving it its necessary focus. And consequently, we're not bringing an intentionality to what we're doing. Like, I have to be mindful that am I showing up as a leader doing this? Am I actually listening and showing a level of care and concern, or am I just saying it? Am I just putting out those pithy statements? I love that, for example, that quote, I can't remember who it was who said, I appreciate your Black Lives Matter statement, 
Now, please show us a picture of the board and your senior leadership in your organization. I love that. I thought that was <laughs> I the loved single it. best inclusivity statement I have ever read. I, I loved it, it too. May, I, you know, I was sitting by myself at home, but I had the biggest grin on my face that you could imagine <laughs> when I read that. I wish I could give, like you were saying before, I could give credit to the person who said it because, again, it's just one of those quotes that came to mind because there's so many in your book that really are thought-provoking. And I know, as you said, it's a blinding flash of the obvious, but I think it's what we need to get us to stop and take a breath, take a moment and try to evaluate how intentional are we being about how we're showing up as opposed to just going through the processes and going back to that first quote I shared from Bill George of just focusing on processes. I was just going to say that. <laughs> well, see, Tom, that's why you and I are, are here having this conversation and so forth. Yeah. And you know what? Can I just re reread it? Reread it. Reread it. Okay. I'm going to reread that quote and bring us back full circle. So the quote from Bill George was the capacity to develop close and enduring relationships is one mark of a leader. Unfortunately, many leaders of major companies believe their job is to create the strategy, organization structure, and organizational processes. Then they just delegate the work to be done, remaining aloof from the people doing the work. And I think our conversation has just demonstrated exactly what Bill is trying to say to us in his quote here. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, Tom, when I do my workshops and if I do my keynotes and I have three of those four of these leaders who were in that room come up to me and say to me, wow, you've made an impact. I'm flying. Yeah. I'm like that Artemis rocket flying off into space with all the thrust you can imagine. Because I realize I've moved that needle and trying to say to people like, look, we can do better. The opportunity is there. We just have to be intentional in our efforts to yeah. say, I want to do that. I want to do and be better. And I have to say, Tom, you know what? It's such a pleasure and honor to speak with you. I mean, I can't believe, and I know you're, you're going to dismiss this, but I really hope you'll take to heart. It's, it's amazing for me to think that I get the opportunity to speak to you a third time here on this podcast. And hey, you know, as I said at the beginning, Two more to go, Tom, and you get a free <laughs> coffee or tea. <laughs> well, let, I want to I want to throw that ball back at you. I would not be coming back for the third time if I hadn't really gotten off on the first two times. So we're even. Okay. Well, I'll you know what when you when you cash in that card, I'll have to send you that loyalty card. So when you come back uh -huh. and cash it in. I'll okay. join you for that cup of coffee, my friend. I, I, It's always such a pleasure to talk to you, Tom. And I can tell you, honestly, I do think you are inspiring people. And I think it is so important that people like you are out there beating those drums because there are people out there who are starting out in their leadership positions and they have these, you know, thankfully, these big ideas, these ambitious goals they want to be the next or their own version of an Al Mulally or any other of the leaders that people look to and say, wow, it's possible to do this in the business world. And they just need to hear from people like you to remind them to ignore the crap, ignore the garbage you're seeing, ignore those leaders who are getting all the press for doing the wrong things yep. and do the right things because that's where the payoff is going to be because you're bringing out the best in those you lead. As good a closing line as I could imagine. So I will say, fabulous conversation. Thank you for the preparation and the energy. And it's great fun. And so I will see you on number four, number five, uh, before you can bat an eye. 
You know, there's two reasons why I love hosting this podcast. One is creating a vehicle where I can help leaders improve the way they lead to help them, as I just said to Tom, see that the opportunity and potential is there for them to do and be better. And the second is being able to speak with leadership giants like Tom Peters. I know someone like Tom is in high demand. Everyone naturally wants to spend time with him, learn from him, and be inspired by him. So the fact that Tom wanted to drop by again to spend time talking with me about something we both care deeply about, get excited about, and no doubt can talk for hours about, well, I just feel grateful for the opportunity as well as for the laughs. Now, I want to make two shout outs here before we wrap up. First, I do want to give credit to that leader I quoted from Tom's book, but whose name I couldn't recall. His name is Brixton Diamond. He's the CEO of Big Answers. And his quote that Tom included in his book that we both enjoyed so much is, I appreciate your Black Lives Matter post. Now follow that up with a picture of your senior management team and your board. So I just wanted to make sure he was credited for a quote, which really stuck with me and which Tom and I spoke about. I also want to mention by name Tom's co-author on this book, Nancy Green, who is behind the beautiful design used in this book. I believe design in itself is a form of communication. And I think what makes this book so effective is not just the content shared here, but also in how it's presented. So again, my thanks to Nancy for creating such a beautiful leadership book. Now, if you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Tom and found that some of the ideas I wanted to speak with Tom reflect topics you'd like to see explored at your upcoming leadership conference or workshop, I'd love for you to contact me so we can discuss some of the ways I can talk about these insights at your event or leadership retreat. The best way to do that is to fill out the contact form on my website at tamvinasir.com. You can also find more information about my speaking and corporate training work on the speaking page found on my website, including what some of my past clients have had to say about working with me and the value their team gained from our sessions. I'm Tavi Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.